We are reading today from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. These are God's words. Ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that even if any obey not the word, they may without the word be gained by the conduct of their wives, beholding your pure conduct with fear, whose adorning they did not be the outward adorning of braiding the hair and of wearing jewels of gold or of putting on apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in the incorruptible apparel of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner aforetime, the holy women also who hoped in God adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose children ye now are, if ye do well, and are not put in fear by any terror. Ye husbands, in like manner, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, giving honor unto the woman as unto the weaker vessel, as being also joint heirs of the grace of life, to the end that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be ye all like-minded, compassionate, loving as brothers, tender-hearted, humble-minded, not rendering evil for evil, nor reviling for reviling, but contrariwise blessing. For hereunto were ye called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that would call, uh, he that would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips that they speak no guile, and let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears unto their supplication. But the face of the Lord is upon them that do evil. Let us give thanks for the reading of God's word. Father, thank you for the gift of your scriptures breathed out by your Holy Spirit. Please send that spirit to us now, that he may help me to rightly divide the word, and that he may distribute it to each of us as we have need, and plant it in our hearts and make it grow, that we may bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> In our series on vocation, we've spent the last couple of weeks looking at the idea of household calling. This is because the basic unit of society, the creational building block that God uses to construct his kingdom from creation onward, is the household. He does call individuals uniquely, but he especially calls men and women to join in marriage because this is the way they normally fulfill one of his most basic callings, which is to be fruitful and multiply. There are other ways to be fruitful and to multiply, especially when we think about the Great Commission as expanding on the Dominion Mandate, but marriage is still the normal way that we do this. And so households are at the heart of what we need to know about God's calling on our lives. Last week we looked at what scripture says about the obstacles that women face in particular when it comes to obeying this calling. We didn't look at every obstacle. I want to focus at the moment in our series on the relational obstacles, the difficulties that men and women have in working together as one flesh in marriage due to sin and the curse. We saw that the curse on Eve created a tension or a paradox within women where their created nature is such that they desire to be in submission to a head, but their cursed nature 
is such that they desire to take over the function of the head. And we saw what this looks like when women give into the curse by indulging their fleshly desires. In the example of the contentious and quarrelsome and fretful woman in Proverbs, and we also saw what it looks like when women overcome their cursed nature through the grace of God and through reflection on his law. In the real-life example of a Proverbs 31 woman, Abigail, the wife of Nabal, who, of course, eventually became the wife of King David. Today, I want to turn to the obstacles that men face like women, we too have wicked fleshly desires that would destroy our marriages and our houses and even our own selves without the restraint of God's law and the benefit of his grace. And like women, we too are cursed by God because of our sin. And that curse causes us further struggle, which we must understand if we are to face these struggles and overcome them. We must know our enemy to know how to fight and defeat our enemy. If we are to obey the calling that God has placed upon our own lives, we must understand that calling, but we must also understand all the ways in which sin wants to sabotage us and rob us of our strength and tear us down and prevent us from obeying that calling. I want to frame this question as I did last week with the curses that God places on mankind. You might think that there is not very much we can learn from the curse on Adam about the obstacles that we have as men in terms of working together with our wives. Remembering our focus right now is relational. But in fact, there is so much that we can learn that I'm going to have to pick only the part that seems most important to me and summarize it at that in order to avoid overloading you with information. And frankly also because I don't have time to prepare a sermon that long. So let us read again Genesis 3:16 to 19 to begin. Unto the woman he said, Multiplying I multiply thy pain and thy conception. In pain thou shalt bring forth children, and against thy husband shall be thy desire, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast listened unto the voice of thy woman, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In toil shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the plant of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou turn back to the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For dirt thou art, and unto dirt shalt thou turn back. As with Eve, God curses Adam in a way that is fitted to his particular created design and the domain over which God gave him authority or the domain into which God gave him duties would be a better way to put it. Eve was made from the man to tend the man and so God curses the relationship between her and the man. Adam was made from the ground to tend the ground, and so God curses the relationship between him and the ground. Work becomes toil. Men, too, have natural desires that are in tension with or paradoxical to their sinful, cursed desires. They want to cultivate a field, but it's hard. Overcoming the thorns forcing the ground to yield its produce. 
They want to build a house, but it's hard, the toil of getting the raw materials, of turning them into something functional. And this is true not just at the literal level, of course, but also the symbolic level. It would be foolish to think that the curse on the ground extends only to agricultural work, because we know that the physical images the spiritual. Everything Adam was made to do becomes toilsome and frustrating and subject to decay and futility. And this is why, just as Proverbs warns us about the fretful and contentious woman because of the curse on Eve, it also warns us about a particular kind of man, the sluggard. Fourteen times in Proverbs, we read about him, the sluggard, and there is much that we can learn about the curse on Adam through him. Solomon's reflections on the sluggard are really a commentary on how the curse works out in a man who gives himself over to it, just as the curse works out in a woman who gives herself over to the curse and becomes contentious and fretful. A man who does this, gives himself over to the curse on Adam, becomes sluggardly. It is a particular weakness and failing in the psyche of every fallen man that we are prone to respond to the curse with a kind of hopelessness or apathy that causes us to be lazy and idle. Now, obviously, it is possible for women to be lazy and idle as well as men, just as it is possible for men to be quarrelsome and contentious as well as women. But scripture describes the sluggard as a man. And as a rule, at least within marriage, I think observation will bear out that men are more inclined to sluggardliness than their wives. This is because, as we discussed last week, men are less anxious about or less concerned with all of the things that aren't as they should be. All the things that are less than ideal, all the things that have not yet been perfected or glorified. Because of the curse on Adam, sluggardliness is really the masculine mirror image to the feminine sins that come with a curse on Eve. The woman grasps at getting more done than is necessary, while the man lets go and does less than is necessary. We're focusing particularly on the obstacles we face in relation to each other in fulfilling our mutual household vocations, not necessarily every sin that every person might be prone to. So don't think that I'm saying that men are uniformly lazier than women. That is not true. But sluggards in Scripture are described as men. But to balance this out, let me take another scriptural example. Paul tells us that single women are prone to sins that being married acts as a hedge against. When women are married, they have less occasion to, in Paul's words, learn to be idle, going about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also, and busybodies speaking things which they ought not. Being married is a hedge against this. I fear that it is less of a hedge today than it used to be because we have machines to do much of our household work for us, but especially because social media has made it really easy to virtually go from house to house tattling and gossiping. We can do that from the comfort of our living rooms without having to actually travel. But nonetheless, that is not my focus today. Today I am interested in how men are affected by sin and the curse to aggravate their wives and make their lives more difficult. 
The fact that social media makes it so much easier for our wives to find online homes to gather in and vent to each other about our failings should make us even more determined to be the kinds of men that our wives would never want to vent about in the first place. It is certainly true that our wives must avoid this temptation. These online forums or groups that are marketed as support ministries, very often just supporting you only and resenting and hating and often eventually divorcing your husband, and women absolutely sin by indulging in these, it is bad behavior. Peter is clear that when husbands misbehave, women don't have the right to misbehave back, but he is equally clear that men are not to misbehave, but rather, as he puts it, they are to live with their wives according to knowledge. Many Bibles will say, in an understanding way, showing honor to them as the weaker vessel. Wives are to fear their husbands, and husbands are to honor their wives. Now, why would he give this instruction unless husbands were often in need of hearing it? It doesn't require very much reading between the lines to see that Peter knows that men are bad at living with their wives according to knowledge. It does not come naturally. Honoring them as the weaker vessel is not something we do automatically. These two things seem to be connected in his mind, do they not? Honoring and understanding. They should be. Because just as the willingness of Eve to submit in marriage is cursed... So the rulership of Adam in marriage is calloused by sin as well. There is an implicit curse on Adam in the curse on Eve. He shall rule over thee. You see, the very problem that caused the curse in the first place was that Adam did not rule over Eve. So it seems that God is doing something here in this curse to ensure that this does not become the pattern for the future, that the seed Adam planted is plucked out. In every curse, there is also grace. What might have happened if God had simply said, your desire shall be against your husband, period? Adam would presumably have continued in the abdication of leadership that caused the fall in the first place. But God does not allow that. He restores the rightful hierarchy even as he curses Eve's contentedness under it. Adam will rule, lest the whole world unravel. But because Adam is now fallen, and because he has never practiced good rulership, he's never done it before, literally, he has not strengthened that muscle, his rulership is not automatically going to be loving and wise, and we are like our father Adam. We see this in the example that Jesus gives of how unbelievers rule each other in general. Ye know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Not so shall it be among you, but whosoever should become great among you shall be your servant, and whosoever would be first among you shall be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, do you think that if this pattern of rulership of lording it over people, is prevalent among the Gentiles, it will not be prevalent in their marriages. Marriage, according to the creational pattern, is where man learns to rule over others. Now, it is true in our culture, we have thrown off any idea of men ruling in marriage, and so we don't tend to see this happening. We have veered into the other ditch, which is quite unusual historically. We have 
taken Jesus to a perverse extreme in this little passage that I just read, where the idea of husbands being the slaves of their wives is taken quite literally in so-called servant leadership. But if we are seeking to correct that, as we will be if we are faithful to Scripture, if we are seeking to exercise the wise rulership in our marriages that God calls us to, then we must be aware that sin will try to grab the wheel and oversteer us into the other ditch until we are lording it over our wives and using 1 Peter 3 as a bludgeon against them if they try to do anything about it. Because after all, they just need to fear us and hope in God. But Peter tells us if we do this, God will not hear our prayers. One of the things that we will discover that our wives are hoping in God is that they will know if they are obeying the word and we are not, that God is hearing their prayers for relief. And he is not hearing our prayers for them to submit to our lordship. So what kinds of behavior specifically should we be on the alert for in ourselves? If there is a danger of lording it over our wives, how can we be sure that we aren't doing that? We can't rely on our feelings that we're doing a good job because I'm confident that the rulers of the Gentiles felt pretty good about themselves while they were lording it over their subjects. But we also can't rely on our wives' feelings about whether we're doing a good job because those feelings, as we saw last week, were specifically cursed by God and are prone to be exaggerated or confused into dissatisfaction and discontentment. A man who makes his wife's approval the benchmark for whether he is ruling his marriage well is, by definition, ruling his marriage badly. This is actually worth emphasizing because, unfortunately, this is the prevailing standard that is given to husbands in the modern church. The husband must be a servant leader, which, unfortunately, is not any kind of biblical idea of either service or leadership, where a husband serves by leading, but rather... It means that the leadership that husbands are called to do is actually a kind of servitude. Service in this model is what leadership looks like rather than leadership being a way in which men serve. You see the distinction. So being a servant leader is not about exercising authority and power, we are told. A servant leader is only authorized to exercise the power of being a servant taking everything on his shoulders that others don't want on theirs. In this way, servant leadership ends up really just meaning that servitude is leadership. And obviously, well, I wish it were obvious to more men. I say obviously, this turns biblical rulership on its head, and it creates extremely unhappy, unfruitful, and unstable marriages. If leaders are responsible for those under their care, but they aren't allowed to exercise authority over them, then what form does the responsibility of a husband for his wife take? It must be the responsibility to make her life easier, to carry her burdens, to make her happy, to suffer in her place. Now, certainly, a biblical ruler should be willing to do these things when it is good for those under him. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. John thirteen fourteen. But a servant leader does not have the discretion of saying no. That's the problem. He, doesn't, he isn't allowed to determine that actually it is fitting for someone else to take the washbowl this time. That would be an exercise of authority and power 
over people. He's making them his doormat. He is being a little tyrant. Because we have done away with the idea of rulership in marriage culturally, any exercise of rulership in marriage to us looks like the husband is lording it over his wife. If he will not sacrifice his own desires for whatever alternative path she thinks will make her happier, then he is lording it over her. Well, you know this, so I won't labor the point, but I can assure you that many men who are escaping this servant leadership mindset will oversteer and do oversteer. I have seen it into the ditch of lording it over their wives. I trust you see how delicate a balance this is. We need guardrails. We need to know that our wife's feelings are not the benchmark for whether we are ruling well without thinking that our wife's feelings have nothing to do with whether we are ruling well. Obviously, you can make a good decision for your marriage that upsets your wife. But just as obviously, if you make a terrible decision for your marriage, that is also going to upset your wife. We are charged with making our wives holier by ordering our marriages and our households, not with making our wives happier by doing whatever they approve of, but holy wives are not generally going to be unhappy with us, are they? Our wives' feelings are neither unimportant nor all-important, so it sure would be helpful to have some kind of backstop to help us know whether we're hitting the right balance. Feelings are not going to cut it. In fact, one of the most important things that we can do as men is not get caught up in the feelings of those we are called to rule over, whether it's our wives or our children. We must be able to sympathize with them and even feel what they are feeling enough to put ourselves in their shoes without being swept up into feeling everything they are feeling because then we have no way to differentiate ourselves and stand apart from those feelings enough to judge whether they are right. If our wife is upset with the decision we made and we get caught up into what she is feeling, we ourselves become upset with the decision that we made. And then we begin to question it because we feel that it was wrong. I want to return to this in a future sermon that is more oriented toward leadership specifically. But because our focus today is on relational obstacles, let's turn to consider what kind of instructions Scripture can provide to ensure us that we're not lording it over our wives, in other words, placing our own feelings above them, nor steering into the other ditch of being ruled by their feelings either, placing their feelings above us. Let me suggest to you that a fruitful way to approach this question is to ask yourself what else Jesus says about Gentile rulers. If we know that lording it over is a problem for Gentile rulers, meaning unbelieving rulers. What else can we learn? Well, here is one particularly instructive comment that he makes as he is asking the crowds why they went out into the wilderness to see John the Baptist. But what went ye out to see? A man clothed in soft apparel? Behold, they that are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in king's courts. Luke 7.25 now, the contrast that Jesus creates here can be aptly summed up as the contrast between hard men and soft men. John the Baptist was a hard man. The, king, the people in king's courts, on the other hand, are contrasted with him and are clearly soft men. These are the kind 
who lord it over others. What makes them soft is the same thing that makes them bad rulers. They would rather have those they rule do hard things for them than do hard things for those they rule. They would rather have those they rule do hard things for them than do hard things for those they rule. Do you see how this ties into the curse on Adam? These men are, in their own way, sluggards. I don't mean that every ruler or every wealthy person is a sluggard, but rather the kinds of soft men that Jesus is contrasting with John are. There is a connection between an unwillingness to work and a willingness to lord it over others. The idle rich are sluggards, and it is easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than to enter the kingdom of God. John the Baptist was all about doing God's work. And among them that are born of women, there is none greater than he, Luke 7.28. Now I'm drawing a bunch of connections here that require you to be able to filter because there are exceptions to these rules. There are also other ways in which overly hard men also come to lord it over those beneath them. These are not exclusive connections, but they are consistent connections. I fear I'm not in much danger of being overly, uh, we are not in much danger of being overly hard men today. So it makes sense to consider what scripture says about soft men, about sluggards, and test ourselves against that. So as our final lap around this topic, let us briefly return to the sluggard and consider what Solomon tells us about him in Proverbs, so that we may measure ourselves against this counsel and reform our ways if necessary. As I already mentioned, the sluggard is a literal embodiment of the curse. You see how Solomon describes him. Proverbs 24, I went by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding. And lo, it was all grown over with thorns. The face thereof was covered with nettles and the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I beheld and considered well. I saw and received instruction. Yet a little sleep a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come as a robber and thy want as an armed man. What is happening here is that the earth is ruling over the man instead of the man over the earth. The wall has broken down, the thorns have grown up, and the man has not put them down. The dominion is backwards. It is an inversion of the creation design on account of sin. It is the natural consequence, it is a fitting punishment for Adam inverting the creation order of dominion between himself, his wife, and God. We do not want to be like this man. But having an overgrown lawn or a broken fence is not the only way to tell that you might be a sluggard. There are five other ways in particular that stand out to me for spotting a sluggard in Proverbs. Firstly, the sluggard lacks initiative. Proverbs 6, go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, which having no chief, overseer, or ruler, provideth her bread in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. Solomon tells us here that the sluggard needs to pay attention to the ants. Animals are given for our instruction. The whole natural world was a classroom for Adam so that he could gain kingly wisdom and learn to exercise wise dominion. So the sluggard needs to pay particular attention to the ant because the ant is hard-working 
despite having no ruler, no one to tell him what to do. Obviously, this is phenomenological language. I don't know whether Solomon knew about queen ants or not, but queen ants do not actually give orders. All the ants in a colony function together without requiring a centralized command structure with the intelligence to look forward to winter and give instructions to every ant to gather food. The ants all work hard instinctually. But a sluggard, he does the other thing. He is incapable of such basic instinctual wisdom. He lives in the moment. He doesn't look ahead. He doesn't think about the future. He doesn't plan. He has no vision or ambition. He has not carefully considered what he needs to achieve, and he has not mapped out what he must do to achieve it. He has set no goal, let alone worked out how to get there. He is living on a wing and a prayer. And because of this, a second thing we learn about him is that he struggles to make headway. Proverbs 15, the way of the sluggard is as a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is made a highway. Making progress for the sluggard is like trying to get through a hedge of thorns. He doesn't know where he's going, and forward momentum is hard. The path of the upright, by contrast, is easy, not because it isn't work, but because he has a direction and a plan. He has a map, so finding the highway is not a problem for him. And because he works hard, God rewards his efforts with increasing momentum. Ironically, one of the ways in which we can be sluggardly here is by taking on too much. The sluggard is a man who is poor at planning, remember. He, ha he doesn't have a clear vision of what he is doing. And so he does not have any clear criteria for deciding whether to do one thing or another. And as a result, he will often take on work in the moment that seems important, but moves him no closer to where he ought to be going. This is the now classic modern problem of busy work in a nutshell. The sluggard lacks the wisdom, the discernment, and the discipline to refuse to do whatever clamors for his attention in the moment, whether it is legitimate work or computer games or social media or watching videos or whatever. He treats his time as a never-ending commodity that will never run out, and so he never asks himself how he will give an account for his use of it. When it inevitably does. Men, I know that we all need to hear this. I am confident that each of us needs to be more disciplined in this regard. I don't mean that we should be questioning every moment that we spend in downtime or chilling out, but I am sure that each of us wastes a great deal more time than we realize, and this time we will never get back that could have been spent working on what God calls us to do, building a house that will stand in eternity, rather than on something that we have probably already forgotten and had no lasting value. Second Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Thirdly, and this goes right along with the problem of busy work especially, and the problem of blotting out in front of a screen, the sluggard is always tired. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? How can I say that this is related to blotting in front of a screen? 
Don't we blot because we are tired? Well, Solomon tells us this is a vicious cycle. Slothfulness casteth into a deep sleep, and the idle soul shall, sh shall suffer hunger. In other words, the more slothful we are, the more slothful we become. Hard work makes us tired, for sure, but it also energizes us. Every man knows this. But the modern world is not very full of hard work and is much more geared towards pacifying us, turning us into couch potatoes, reducing our energy levels until we feel like we can't even get out of bed. As the door turneth upon its hinges, so doth the sluggard upon his bed, flopping to and fro. His lifestyle and his sin so exhausts him that even as he slobs in front of the TV, scoffing Doritos, he can barely move. The sluggard burieth his hand in the dish. It wearieth him to bring it again to his mouth. I'll just leave it there for a while. And this brings us to a fourth thing that helps us to easily identify a sluggard. He is a rampant consumer, but never a producer. He devours the value of others, but he creates no value for them. He endlessly eats the fruits of their labors, but he is a tree that produces no fruit of its own. Solomon aptly sums this up in the contrast in Proverbs 13:4: The soul of the sluggard desireth and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. Now all of this leaves the sluggard with a problem of self-image, of explaining his failures. Which brings us to the fifth and final way that we can spot him in ourselves. A sluggard is an excuse-making know-it-all. The sluggard saith, there is a lion outside, I shall be slain in the streets. There is a lion in the way, a lion is in the streets. This is absolute nonsense, of course, there is no lion. This is just an infantile, absurd kind of excuse-making. And it is an exaggeration on the part of Solomon in order to draw our attention to how ridiculous the sluggard's reasons are for not doing what needs to be done. He just can't do it. It's too hard. That is how he feels. But it is not reality. Unfortunately for the sluggard, his own perception is reality for him. He is stiff-necked and arrogant and proud, and he refuses to be corrected. And hence Solomon tells us, the sluggard is wiser in his own conceit than seven men that can render a reason. Despite his complete failure to make progress in life, which should alert him to the fact that he is a fool, the sluggard thinks he knows it all. You can't argue with him. He has an answer for everything. Because the one thing that he cannot do is accept his own shortcomings, because that would require changing. He continues to live in a delusion, a fantasy land about himself, so that he won't have to do that work. I'm sure we all know someone like this, but that is not really my point to judge others. Rather, every one of us is also someone like this. I don't mean that we are all sluggards in a holistic, total way. We are not the embodiment of the sluggard that Proverbs describes, I hope. But rather, because of the curse, every one of us has a sluggard within him. A sluggard in his flesh, who constantly is convinced that he shouldn't have to do the work that God has made his responsibility he is constantly looking for excuses to not do that work, and he is constantly justifying it 
to others. I mean, I hope that you're able to see that this inner sluggard is not just bad for us, but it is bad for our wives. The sluggard does not want to destroy only our souls. He wants to destroy our houses. Our wives' well-being is bound up with those houses. Their confidence in the future rests heavily on our ability to make the future happen. Our willingness to work is proportional to their frustration and anxiety. We are the head, and they are the body in the scriptural analogy. So imagine having a head who has no vision, a head who will not look to where it is going, a head that will not guide the body and command it in doing the work, a head that will not set the pace. Of course, our wives must hope in God as Peter tells us, but we do not want to be men whose wives must learn to obey 1 Peter 3, a passage designed to encourage women with bad husbands. Let us not destroy their confidence or tempt them to anxiety or test their patience. God willing, in my next sermon, I would like to build on the foundation that I've laid today and look for further practical wisdom in Scripture to guide us in ruling ourselves and our wives and our families well, so that we may all be encouraged and equipped to build houses that stand firm and endure and are worthy of the great work to which God has called us. But for now, let us sing our next hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Thankfully we do.